The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Matthew, in the sixth chapter and the thirty-third verse, one of the verses out of that section which we read at the beginning, verse 33, in the sixth chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Here you notice in this section our Lord, in a very practical and in a very intimate manner, was uh, dealing with the great problem of life and of living. He was addressing primarily his own disciples, his own followers, but he knows human nature very well, and he knows how oftentimes our lives are marred and ruined by our concerns, by our anxiety, just about living itself. Where's our food to come from? Where's our clothing to come from? What does tomorrow hold for us? What lies ahead of us? These, he knew very well, are the questions and the problems that constantly arise in the human breast. And here he is speaking intimately to his followers in order to help them and to give them guidance with respect to these pressing practical questions and problems in connection with our daily life and living. Now, this is a matter, I say, that concerns us all. These things, whether we like it or not, tend to be uppermost in our minds and in our lives. Life itself, more or less, insists upon that. And perhaps especially at a time like this. These tend to be the matters that are uppermost in all our minds. I'm not only referring to the fact that this happens to be the first Sunday of a new year. I'm referring also and thinking also of the fact that we find ourselves in a position of considerable perplexity and uncertainty as a nation and as citizens in this world of time at this present hour. We are all concerned about the future. What's 1957 going to bring forth? What lies ahead of us? Is the period of comparative prosperity we've enjoyed as a nation, is it to continue? Or are we to go back to the black and the dark days of the 30s with unemployment and uncertainty in the case of many? What's it to be? Is it to be health or sickness? Is it to be life or death? Those are the questions that inevitably arise in our minds. We're all concerned, I say, about our future, about our welfare, about our well-being. Now, so far, that is common to the whole of mankind. Whether we are Christian, whether we are non-Christian. Every one of us, because we are just human beings, is concerned about those questions. The difference arises, of course, at this point. When we come to consider what is really our true well-being, and secondly, as to how that well-being is to be promoted, to be assured, 
and to be safeguarded. We are all concerned about our well-being, yes, but there's a division of opinion as to what exactly is well-being. What is life? What is it rarely to have a good time? What is rarely to live in this world? Now there, I say, there is a great cleavage of opinion. Cleavage of opinion with regard to the thing itself, and obviously, therefore, as to how that end whichever it happens to be, in our view, is to be attained and how it is to be maintained. And here I say, at this point, there are only two possible views. The godly view, the ungodly view, the religious view, the non-religious view. Now, I say that there are no others. There are only those two. Our Lord himself says it in the very context. He cannot serve God and mammon. No man can serve two masters. You see, there are never more than two. All those who do not belong to God all go under one category. They don't belong to God. God or mammon. God is either our master or else he's not. And if he isn't, well, somebody or something isn't, it doesn't matter what. The important thing is it isn't God. It's either God or not God, religious, non-religious. And there are no other possibilities save those two. Now, alas, unfortunately, I needn't take up any time in reminding you that this second view is the popular one at the present time. Christian people in this country are a very small minority tonight. The vast bulk of the people are not at all interested in the religious view. They're not at all concerned about it. And indeed, if they are concerned or interested at all, well, it's either just to patronize it, or else it is to despise it. Religion, Christianity speaking generally, is in this country today either, I say, patronized in a condescending manner, made use of to serve people's own purpose as far as they want to do so, and then dropped, or else it is despised, derided, dismissed, and rejected. Now, there is nothing that the typical modern man, who rather likes to pride himself on his thinking and on his intelligence and on his understanding, there is nothing, I say, which is so ready to deny completely and absolutely as the assertion that religion is the supreme matter in life. Now that, I say, the modern men will not have at any price or at any cost. Now I want to put his position to you in some words that I read recently. Here is a typical illustration of the modern, sophisticated attitude towards life and towards religion. You will notice in it the element of patronage and of contempt. I don't hesitate to name the author whom I'm about to quote because he's written it in a book and it's there available for anybody to read. I refer to a distinguished historian who belongs to the University of Oxford, whose name is A. L. Rouse. He has written a book recently with the title, The Early Churchills. 
And, of course, in writing that book, he has inevitably to consider the history of that great and most important epoch in English history, the 17th century. The century that includes, you see, the Civil War and the Protectorate of Cromwell and the Commonwealth and then the Restoration Period and the Great Rebellion of 1689 and so on. It's a great period. And he, perforce, in dealing with the history of the early Churchills, has to deal with that period of history. Now, this is what he says about it. Religion, he says, was, as so often in history, the convenient platform, as we should call it, uh, not in itself without significance, but of subordinate importance to adult minds. More important matters than religion were involved. The freedom of the English people, the constitutional government, and our liberties. Do you get it? You see how he puts it? He says, of course, as an historian, I've got a grant that uh, religion did come into it in the Civil War and in the Commonwealth and in the Restoration period and right through. Religion was, as so often in history, uh, the convenient platform, as we should put it. Not in itself without significance. We feel like saying, thank you very much. Not uh, without significance but of subordinate importance to adult minds. Chief importance, of course, to children. Chief importance to illiterate and educated people who don't know any better. Indeed, they sometimes are so offensive as to say chief importance to women and children, but not to men. Uh, not, he says, of subordinate importance to adult minds. Then, more important matters than religion were involved. The freedom of the English people, the constitutional government, and our liberties. These are the more important things. Religion, all right, subordinate. But these were the great and the big things. Well, now then, here you see... You have something that is a blank and a complete denial to the teaching of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who says, Seek ye first, first, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things shall be added unto you. Now then, you see, it's one or the other. We are either followers of Mr. A. L. Rouse, we are either, or else we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. I do not conceive it to be the function of preaching, to conduct an argument with any individual, however important and significant he may chance to be. And if you know what I'm about to say, I am transgressing what I myself regard as the law's governing preaching. May I be forgiven. But I cannot refrain from saying this. I take up that word about adult minds. We are told, you see, that um, religion was only of subordinate importance and is of only subordinate importance to adult minds. This is what the great historian says. And you know one of the people about whom he's saying it? 
Well, he happens to be one of the people who comes into the very history about which he is writing, Oliver Cromwell. Are we prepared to say, even if we are not Christians, that Oliver Cromwell hadn't got an adult mind? Because to Oliver Cromwell, religion was the matter of supremest importance. It was the governing factor in the whole of his life. If you regard Oliver Cromwell as a great man, well, you've got to admit that he would say himself that it was his religion that made him what he was. But here is a man who says it's of subordinate importance to adult minds, and thereby he says Oliver Cromwell was either a child or an adolescent, not adult. You see, my friends, the importance of thinking as you read and of not being influenced by great names. There's a word in the book of Job which comes to my mind. It says, great men are not always wise. And great men sometimes can make grievous, lamentable mistakes in their own department, in their own field of study. And here is one of them. Oliver Cromwell, perhaps one of the greatest men that this country has ever known, perhaps the greatest Englishman of all times, not an adult mind. I refrain from mentioning some of the others. John Milton, another contemporary of Cromwell. Can it be said truthfully that he hadn't an adult mind? John Owen and Thomas Goodwin, the preachers, and theologians, John Hamden, Pym, and the rest, were these children and adolescents? Read their histories, and you'll find that to them religion was the chief and the supreme thing. Can any man honestly look at a great list of the giants of history and say that they hadn't adult minds? Can you say that the Apostle Paul hadn't an adult mind? Can you say that Augustine... Perhaps one of the greatest historians who's ever lived. Hadn't he an adult mind? To him, religion was the first thing, the chief thing. And so I could bring you down the running centuries and show you the greatest benefactors of the human race, one after another, who all subscribe to this theory, to this idea, this teaching of Christ, who says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, ending with a man like William Ewart Gladstone, the great statesman of the last century. Surely he cannot be dismissed as an adolescent or as a child, and to him religion was the supreme thing. Well, I say, I just utter that word in passing. I'm rather anxious to deal with our Lord's teaching in a positive manner, and let me therefore put it directly and immediately to you. What does he say? Well, our Lord says that religion is to be the first thing in our lives, not subordinate to anything else, However high, however noble, however wonderful it may chance to be, seek ye first, before everything else, first. Give it priority, he says, to use the modern jargon. Put it in the first position. Allow nothing to come in your thinking before this, first. And then you see there's an inevitable deduction which we must make from that, and I want to apply it at this moment. If our view of the Christian faith is correct, 
if we really do believe in the teaching of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, well then religion will be the first thing in our lives. If you really believe it, it's got to come first. And it will come first. Therefore, my friends, I make no apology at all for turning aside at this point and in putting a simple, direct, and blunt question to you. Where does religion come in your life? Is it first? Is it primary? Do you give it the first priority? Is this the thing that dominates your life? Now, I don't hesitate to make this assertion. If it isn't the first and the chiefest thing in your life, you haven't got it. No man can have a true view of the gospel of Christ and put it anywhere in his life except first. I shouldn't even have said put it. You know, if you really believe in this, it puts you in your right place. It dominates your life. It takes the center, the throne of your being. So that... Whatever our profession may be, and I'm speaking to those who call themselves Christians, as well as everybody else in this congregation, I say if your religion isn't first and chiefest, it's of no value to you. It isn't the true Christian faith. Very well, then let me go on and ask the obvious question. Why should it be first? Seek ye first, he says, the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. Why should it be first? Why should everything else be subordinate to it? Why should I say no I have no time for anything or anybody. Until I'm clear about this. Let me give you some simple answers to the question. They're all suggested here by the verse and its context. The first reason is obviously this one. That religion concerns our highest relationship of all. Now here we are in this world. And we all find ourselves involved in certain things. We are all in a given relationship. We all live in families. We all belong to communities. We belong to countries. We all belong to this great world in which we live. And indeed the great problem of today in many ways is the problem of relationships. A man's relationship to his wife, parents' relationship to their children, children's relationship to parents, relationships within family groupings, relationships at work and at business and in the profession. These are the causes of misery and unhappiness, aren't they? Because these relationships go wrong and break down. Relationships between groups and classes within the country, international relationships, relationships Oh, there's nothing more important than relationships. And our relationships with one another, with men and women, is a matter of paramount importance. It's no part of the preaching of the gospel to derogate from or to take from in any sense the importance of these personal and human relationships. But my dear friend, Above and beyond them all, soaring infinitely higher than every one of them, is this profound and fundamental thing, my relationship to the living God. It's a great thing, it's a wonderful thing to belong to a good and a great family. I believe that's something a man can take a legitimate pride in. 
We all like to say that we know important and distinguished people. There's nothing wrong in that. They're worth knowing, many of them. It's all right. It's a natural instinct. We should always desire to go for the best and the highest and the noblest that is available. Well, very well, if that's a sound argument, follow it on to its own logical end and conclusion. Man has been made for God, and he's meant to know God and enjoy his companionship and his fellowship. Is this something subordinate? Is to know the eternal maker of the universe, the artificer and sustainer of the whole reeling cosmos, is that secondary to human relationships? What nonsense it is to suggest that this is a matter of subsidiary importance. The whole business of religion is to know God. The study of it is called theology, which means the knowledge of God. You see, religion doesn't just really mean being good and not doing certain bad things. Religion isn't just a bit of ethics and morality. The whole essence of religion is, as our Lord himself put it, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Abram is called the friend of God. Enoch walked with God and was not. That's life. The relationship to God. Is there anything beyond this? Is there anything greater than this? Is there anything higher than this? My dear friends, you only have to think of it to see it at a glance. Man is at his best and highest when he is in communion with God. Nothing can go beyond that. But let me hurry to my second point. It also concerns the highest part of our being. Now, man is a strange creature, and we have many parts, haven't we, to our being? And they're all important, and we mustn't despise any one of them. There is a bodily and an animal part. It's there. It's given us by God and we are not to abuse it. We are to respect it. We must never despise it or regard it lightly. That's a false asceticism of which many an Eastern religion is guilty. Not so the Christian religion. But you see there is a kind of gradation in these things. You start with the, with the body. The animal part of our nature. That's the part of us which is concerned about eating and drinking and uh, various other functions. There's nothing wrong in eating, there's nothing wrong in drinking, there's nothing wrong in sex as such. All these things are put into our bodies by God and we are meant to use them and to function in those respects very well. But there it is, that is the animal level. There's a higher level, the, the level, if you like, of the heart, the subjective the sensations, the sensibilities, the emotional part of man's being and of man's nature. That is higher, you know. Of course, if you take your philosophy from the novelettes and the films, you wouldn't think it was higher. They equate love with sex. And that's, of course, the tragedy of the modern world that that's being done. But love can be separated from sex. It's a higher part of man's being. And then, if you like, you can go up still higher and go to the mind. What a wonderful instrument this is that God has given us. The ability to think, the ability to reason, 
the ability to work things out, the ability to ruminate, the ability to, fun, to follow an argument, the mind, and all the enjoyments in the realm of the mind, philosophy, poetry, thinking out a scheme of life, working out a whole conception and an idea. What a marvelous thing. Well, there, you see, we're going up the scale, aren't we? We are rising. But you know, the greatest thing in men is not even his mind. There is the soul. There is the spirit. There is that faculty in men put in him by God at the beginning when he made him in his own image that makes a man capable, I say, of this communion with God, this thinking about God, this sensing of God, this knowledge of God with a directness and an intimacy that baffles description. The soul, the spirit, this is the highest thing in men. And that is the special concern of religion. This thing that Mr. L. Rouse says, which is of subordinate interest and which uh, does not appeal primarily to the adult mind. This thing in man, I say, that lifts him above the animal and says that he's not but a reasoning animal or but a collection of impulse and instincts, but no, has this within him, this faculty divine, this thirst for the illimitable and the eternal, this sense of God, the soul, the spirit. That's the second reason for saying then that this must come first. It talks about the highest thing that is in us as well as putting us into the highest relationship of all. But come, let me go to a third principle. This must be put first because it inevitably and always leads to the very highest conception of life. You notice how our Lord puts it. He says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, I'm asserting that there is no higher conception than that. There is no thought ever which has come into the mind of men which is higher than this thought of the kingdom of God and of righteousness. What do I mean? Well, righteousness is the supreme category. It is the highest concept. Oh, how much higher it is than happiness. There's nothing wrong with happiness. There's nothing wrong in desiring to be happy. We all should desire to be happy. Yes, but my dear friend, there's something much bigger and higher than happiness. It's this righteousness. Indeed, the world itself, you know, is prepared to grant that happiness is not the supreme thing in life. It's not the highest thing. The history of mankind bears very eloquent testimony to that. Some of the greatest epics have been written about that. An instance comes to me as I'm speaking of that the great man Oates, you remember, who was with Captain Scott on that ill-starred expedition. And you remember what he did? When he saw that the food was going and that he himself was already an ill man, he saw the only thing to do to save his comrades was that he should deliberately open the tent door and walk out into the blizzard and into the storm and into the darkness, walk into the jaws of death. 
And when Captain Oates did that, you know, he wasn't consulting his own happiness. He'd got a higher category operating. Happiness is not the supreme thing. It's a great thing, but it isn't the best. Well, what else? Well, we are told that there are certain things which are of tremendous importance. Let me remind you of what they are. Uh, here they are. The freedom of the English people. The constitutional government. And our liberties. Ah, yes, there's many a man who said happiness isn't the final thing. I think we can legitimately take pride in the fact that there have been men, even men who have not been Christian, who have been big enough to say liberty is more important than happiness. You can have a kind of happiness as a slave. You can have a kind of happiness if you're a victim to a drug or some practice or something like that. These men have said happiness isn't the end. I'm ready to lay down my life, says a man, as long as I can win liberty for my people or for my country. Freedom. Many a man has sacrificed his happiness, his home, his loved ones, his well-being for the sake of liberty and of freedom. It's a greater thing. It's a bigger thing. And yet, you know, it isn't the supreme thing. The French Revolution was fought for liberty and equality and fraternity. I'm second to no one in my belief in liberty. The people that is content to serfdom and slavery is unworthy of the name of people, whatever the form the slavery may chance to take. Liberty, equality, yes, it's the right of men. There should be no difference. There should be an equality of opportunity to every child that is born into this world. Equality. Fraternity. Noble words. And there were those who thought, you see, that in the name of liberty, equality, and fraternity, the world could be made perfect. That was 1789. But it hasn't come, has it? They're evidently not the supreme categories. High though they are, there is something more. There is something higher. Let me go yet higher in the scale. What about character, says someone? Surely, he argues, the supreme thing is character, nobility of character. And though a man may be a slave if he's got nobility of character, there's nothing higher, there's nothing better. Nobility of character, greatness in a humanitarian sense, if you like, in a human sense. I agree, it's a very noble, it's a very fine, it's a very wonderful thing. But you know, I know something infinitely higher. What's that? Well, that's righteousness. That is holiness. That is to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Yea, I go further. It is to be like God. Now the Lord Jesus Christ himself said that. He said, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. There's nothing higher than that. It goes beyond men. There's always some defect, some blemish in the best men. But here is God, the perfection of God. Come to the top of the mount, says Christ. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. There's nothing higher than this. So I would challenge you. 
to go through all the noblest and the highest literature that the world has ever produced and to put before me the picture of its ideal men and of ideal life and of ideal humanity and then take it and put it by the side of the New Testament men put it by the side of Christ Put it by the side of the Apostle Paul. Put it by the side of some of these great saints whom he's made saints throughout the centuries. And I think any honest man will admit and agree they pale into insignificance. Bring them here. Confront them by the Galilean. Hold them face to face with the man. This man. And you know what the Christian faith, what the Christian religion, if you like, offers to us is this. To make us anew and to make us conformable to the image of the Son of God. Created anew in righteousness of truth and of holiness after the pattern of God's own Son. This is the highest concept that men can ever consider. It leads to the highest conception of life and of living. That's why it must come first and must never be but a subordinate interest. But come, let me hurry on. I've got another reason, and here it is. This must be put first because it concerns our eternal welfare and well-being and destiny, as well as our welfare and our destiny in time. And isn't it a pathetic and a tragic blindness that fails to see that? Don't misunderstand me. I'm not here to say that political considerations are not important. I'm not here to say that the things that Mr. A.L. Rouse regards as of supreme importance are of no importance at all. I've just been paying my tribute to them. But, my dear friends, I'm here to point out this, that taken as they are and at their best, they're only temporary. This is permanent. They are only for the present. This is also for the future. They belong to time. This belongs to eternity. And isn't it sad to notice how blind men can be to this? Ah, religion has its importance. But of course it's very subsidiary. The really big things are the liberty of the English people, the constitution, and our freedoms, and so on. I know, I agree, but how long are they going to last? Only while you last and live in this world... You won't be very interested, my friend, in the freedom of the English people when you're on your deathbed. You won't be much concerned about the constitutional liberties. No, no, it'll be you yourself going out no longer an Englishman or a Welshman, an Irishman or a Scotsman or an American or anything else, but as a soul going on into that unknown eternity. When a man tells me that to him religion is only of subsidiary importance, I say the only reason for that is that he's forgotten his soul. He's forgotten that there is life after death. He's forgotten that there's eternity. He's acting on the assumption, which he cannot prove at all, that when a man dies, that that's the end of him. It's like a light going out, a flower dying, a tree falling, an animal ceasing to exist. And he doesn't know, he's only assuming it. So he lives for time, and he puts into jeopardy his eternity. But the moment you realize 
that dust thou art to dust returnest was not spoken of the soul. The moment you realize that our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting, and that our life will go on, and that death is not the end, and that beyond it we exist and continue, then I say, you begin to realize that it's that that matters. What is this? Well, the psalmist has reminded us three score years and ten, perhaps eighty, with the national health and so on, and the new drugs, maybe ninety, but not much longer, and you're pretty feeble when you get to ninety, with all your drugs, and you'll go tottering along, and the end must come. And then, eternity, and thoughts of that unknown born, from which no traveler returns. Beloved friend, I'm pleading with you to think, is there anything more important than this? That you should safeguard not only your present liberties and well-being and welfare, but your everlasting and eternal and your absolute existence forever and forever. This alone deals with it. That is why it must come first. And then I bring you to my last reason, my last argument. This must come first because when this is right, we really have no need to be worried or concerned about anything else. You see the logic, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things shall be added unto you. What are these other things? Oh, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? What of tomorrow? What lies ahead? What's going to come? Life, death, what is it? And our Lord says that if we put this first, and are right about this, then we need have no concern about these other things, that they will be safeguarded, they will be looked after. May I put it to you like this? I say again that I don't want to detract from the importance, the great importance of the freedom of the English people and the constitutional government and our liberties and things like that. But you know I am constrained to point out this. The world has been very concerned about all those things for many long centuries. And with our distinguished historian, it has said these are the supreme things. And it has patronized religion contemptuously, granting that it has a place perhaps in the evolution of the human race, but no more, and not of primary significance to an adult mind. The world has concentrated on these things, constitutional government, essential primary freedoms, the four freedoms, and so on. We've fought wars about them, we've made speeches about them, we've organized various organizations to safeguard them and to protect them. While we've been ignoring God and religion, and what has it brought us to? Has it safeguarded the constitutional liberty of the people of Hungary? Has it safeguarded the freedom and the liberty of those people to live as they want to and to think as they choose and please? It's rather tragic, isn't it, that historians can speak like this? 
Reversing the order of priorities, you see. He's produced the world of chaos. The very liberties and constitutional positions that they say are of supreme importance have not been won. And men without God and men not subservient to God will never really bring them into being. Because when man is without God, he becomes a beast. And while he thinks very highly of his own liberty, he doesn't think so highly of anybody else's liberty. And so, you see, the modern world proves the utter folly and fallacy of reversing the order. Even when you put these things first, you don't get them. But conversely, it is true to say this. That when you have men in charge of affairs and in control of the lives of countries, you are given liberty. Freedom of worship, you know, came in under Cromwell and the Commonwealth while it lasted. It hadn't been there before. Constitutional liberty came in. These men fought for these things because they had this Christian conception of men. And it is they alone who have ever brought it in. Let the working classes of this country never forget that they owe all the liberties and the benefits that they're enjoying today directly to the evangelical awakening of the 18th century. It was that that awakened men to the dignity of their own lives and their own labor. It was that that so enabled them to think that they later formed themselves into trades union. It was directly, primarily a religious movement, and the first leaders were religious men. The greatest liberties and benefits that we enjoy in this country tonight have come directly in the wake of religion. It was a Wilberforce who led the agitation for the abolition of slavery against tremendous opposition from these worldly wise men who say that religion is not for an adult mind. They were all against him. It was the religious men, the evangelical Christian, who fought for this, for the dignity of human life, whatever its color might chance to be. It was a Lord Shaftesbury who was the prime agent in the abolition of the in the bringing in of the factory acts and the abolition of child labor and all the horrors of the factories and the mines before that time my dear friends i could keep you endlessly in giving you this long list and category i say that when you don't put this first you lose all the rest but as our lord says put this first and all these other things shall be added unto you If you belong to God in Jesus Christ, you have no need to worry about the future. Take no thought, therefore, for the morrow, he says, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. He's already said that God is our Father and that not a sparrow can fall to the ground apart from God. And if he's so interested in sparrows, how much greater is his interest in us Look at the lilies of the field, he says, the grass of the field. Look at it all. These things come from God and are controlled by him. Why not you? If you belong to him and to his kingdom and have his righteousness, 
then I'm proud to be able to tell you that you're ready for life. You're ready for adversity. You're ready for illness. You're ready for death, your own, or that of someone who's very dear to you. You're ready for calamity. You're ready for pestilence. You are ready for hell let loose. You are ready for eternity. In the hands of Jesus Christ, you're safe. And no one can finally harm you or rob you. If your treasure is in this life, in this world, well, it'll go. Moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves break through and steal. The things you paid so much money for are rotting from the moment you've bought them. You yourself are beginning to rot. Your life is ebbing out of you every moment you live. Everything is dying. And when you die, you have to leave them behind you. But if your treasure is in heaven and with God, thieves cannot break through nor steal there. No moth nor rust can enter there. It's all holy, it's all perfect, it's all eternal and everlasting, and it's yours forever and forever. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. My dear friend, I want to leave you this first Sunday night of 1957 with just this question. Have you sought the kingdom of God? Have you sought God's righteousness? It's the only thing that'll last. It's the only thing that's durable. It's the only thing you can enjoy here and now. Continue to enjoy while you're left in this world. Enjoy in death and enjoy throughout the countless ages of eternity. Have you sought it? Have you got it? Are you in the kingdom of God? Do you know that God is your father? And that you are his child. Do you know that the very hairs of your head are all numbered? Do you know for certain that God will never leave you nor forsake you? Oh, there's nothing that comes before this. Yes, go in for your liberties. Go in for your freedoms. Go in for your constitution. But you may not be here a week tonight. Make certain of that. Make certain that you yourself, your soul, is right now, tomorrow, always, in eternity. There's only one way. You'll never enter the kingdom of God by your own striving. It's too great, it's too pure, it's too noble, it's too wonderful. You'll never make yourself fit to get there. You can take all your New Year's resolutions, you won't keep them. And if you kept them all, it wouldn't be enough. God is holy and eternally just. And your goodness and mine is but as filthy rags in his holy sight. What then? Do you know this is the most glorious thing of all? It's so overwhelming I can scarcely even say it. This is offered to us as a free gift. Here and now. Whatever we may have been, whatever we may have done, however long from mercy I may have turned away, Thy blood, O Christ, can cleanse me and make me white today. You need bring nothing in your hands. It's a message for paupers. It's a message for those who are sick. 
empty-handed, come as you are. Come, I invite you to Christ. All the fitness he desireth is to feel your need of him. All he asks of you is that you admit and confess that you've been a fool and that you haven't put these things first but have put the other things first, that you now see it and that you desperately want these things, that you want him, that you want forgiveness, you want peace, you want to know him, you want his life, you want the assurance of eternity. Tell him that. Ask him for it. And he has promised that if you do so honestly, he will not refuse you nor reject you. He says, Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Come unto him, and so enter into the kingdom. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Make it your first, your primary, your chiefest priority. And then all will be well with you tonight, throughout 1957, throughout life, through death, throughout eternity. Amen.